Hey, this is Barbara Corcoran. You are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. But first, I'm so happy today because I'm here with Mary Hannon of CNBC. And I met her very recently because she was shooting a show called The Brave Ones. And after speaking with her a few minutes, I thought to myself, in the TV world, this woman has the ideal job that every young producer dreams about having. And I just couldn't wait to ask her, what's that like? Think of this. There's a million people coming into the TV business. Everybody wants to be a big shot producer. And the business is so tough, it spits people out faster than they could come in. And here's a woman sitting here who started at the bottom, the very, very bottom, (laughs) and worked her way up and actually got rewarded for her efforts by having a dream job. So we're going to talk about a dream job, what it's like to reach the top of your industry and look forward to the next day and what's around the corner and all that good stuff. So this is a happiness piece all on Mary. So Mary, you're here and you're in the unusual spot of being interviewed versus interviewing. Yes, it's a little uncomfortable having the table turned on me. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's We wanted to make you very uncomfortable. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about your start. Everybody always likes to know how people get born. I went to school for music theater. I thought I was going to go to Broadway. And uh, I studied at University of Michigan, fabulous school. And then I was going to drop out after my sophomore year and move to the city with friends of mine. But why drop out? That's a little Because we decided that learning acting in an academic atmosphere wasn't great. We really needed to be, you know, in it. And I agree with that, by the way. My father sat me down and said, I think you're very talented. I think it's a great idea. But how about if you finish your degree in something else, find something related, have a plan B, and then after you graduate, if you really want to do that, I'm all for it. You go pursue it. Did two years. I switched schools to Syracuse, went to Newhouse for broadcast journalism, had to take an extra year. So I did five years. And then I was going to be a reporter. And I fell over a balcony, smashed my teeth, broke my arms. No way. Yeah, the day before I graduated no college. No way. And I thought, Karma. okay, mm. maybe your dad didn't arrange that, right? No, no, dad, okay. dad wasn't responsible. <laughs> and so I decided that maybe in front of the camera wouldn't be great. So I would work behind the camera. Wow. And I had a friend who was in the page program at NBC. So I looked at the page program and interviewed for that and the messenger center in the mailroom. And the Messenger Center in the mailroom offered benefits as well. Page program got paid, but no benefits. And because I still had dental work that I needed to do, I was like, okay, I'll start in the Messenger Center. What do you think is the personality difference between someone who's really good getting the story, recording the story, forming the story, and the person who's doing the talking? Is it two different types of people totally? What kind of a talent do you need to be in front or behind the camera? 
well, to be in front of the camera, obviously, you know, you have to have a good speaking voice. You good have teeth. to look at, yeah, exactly, <laughs> good teeth. But you have to be comfortable in front of the camera. You think people are naturally comfortable in front of a camera? Like you can judge? I do. You mm-hmm. do? Oh, I absolutely do. Wow. Yeah. From the beginning, not as a result of experience. A person at 22 sits in front of a camera, you look at them, but they're comfortable. Man, they're in the right field. Or does it take a while? I think it can be both. I do know that when I was in school and we were practicing it, I loved doing it. It was easy to read a teleprompter. It seemed very natural. But when I went behind the camera, I really liked, especially when I was in investigative production, I didn't want to have to go up to the bad guy. I didn't want to stick the microphone in somebody's face to mm. say, you know, like, you're scamming these yeah, people. But you were the guy behind so the camera I, saying, I get up there the, and stick the microphone. Yes. Yeah, that's a mean thing to do. Like, give the other guy the <laughs> no, dirty be, work. No, because there are people who really, really like to do that. One of the reporters that I worked with at Inside Edition, Matt Mahar, was fabulous at it. All I had to do was I did all of the research. I knew everything that we needed to go get after somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would do it. Did you ever stop and question, is this really a bad guy we're going after? Is it my right to corner them as they're going into the house, ask them what the skinny is, accuse them of something? Did you have have any moral issues with that? Because I always assume all that stuff, I believe, it almost taints the person. The minute you're seeing them say, I'm not guilty in front of a camera, you know they're guilty or that's the assumption. But did you ever have any conscience qualms about that before you really knew if they were guilty for whatever you were exposing? Certainly, that's why you do a ton of research beforehand. You want to make sure that the person is really doing evil things before you confront them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just us. There's a huge team of people. I mean, you have all to go through the, the lawyers. Yes. And in order to get approval for hidden camera, that all goes through standards and practices and lawyers and all. So it's not just, oh, we think this would be a good mm-hmm. person to go after. But do you need any legal clearance from the township or the police department to hide a camera on somebody? Or you just decide to hide the camera on the mailbox and you're good to go? Uh, well, it depends on the state that you're in. There's a one-party and a two-party state. So there are certain states, like California is a two-party state. What does that mean, a two-party state? It means that both people in the conversation need to know that you are taping something. So they would have to agree to it. Oh, in advance? Why would a bad guy agree to let you have a camera? Well, exactly. Yeah. So there are certain states that it's tough. You can't really do hidden camera in. Uh And how's New York? Come on, we like to get the bad guys. Yeah, no, New York is a one-party state. Yeah, so you just, uh, and one party again means you just set up your camera, you're good to go. Well, you're not really setting up a camera. Remember, you're carrying it in a bag. You could be in glasses. It could be body worn. Mm -hmm. And they've taken huge advances since I was doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you decide to quit investigative reporting, which is something that no one really ever does in the field. Everybody aspires to it and wants to stay in it. And because it's got to be, I would think, the most exciting part of the TV business. But why'd you quit? When I started at CNBC, I did a bunch of different things. I worked on a show called Media Beat. It was entertainment. And then I worked on a show called Steals and Deals. And that was fun because I got to go skydiving for the first time because wow. we were doing tandem skydives. You got paid for this stuff? Exactly. Holy mackerel. Went whitewater rafting. It was incredible. Paid for that too? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and then we started to do more of an investigative push. Mm-hmm. And which was the best part? I would think the fun part would be the part I'd sign up for. Did you like that better? All the experiences and all the different types of experiences is what I found made it so fascinating. Mm. Because I don't think I would have gone skydiving had I not had been able to, to use it job. as a story. Oh my yes. God. Mm-hmm. And then investigative though, you know, like the hidden camera was, 
an adrenaline rush, of really. Of course, right? yeah. Because you're always afraid that you're going to get caught a little bit. You want to make sure that you have the camera angles. The equipment we were using back then, as I said, was a little unwieldy. You know, now I love doing profiles on people because I find people so fascinating. A little bit different though, because you're digging for the personality versus trying to pin them as a bad guy, catch the rat, so to speak. Isn't that a totally different spin? Yeah. When I was doing investigative stuff, I really wanted to change the world. I thought that we were righting wrongs and this is going to be a great thing. And how old were you then? Were you young enough to still be an idealist? Uh, I was in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah, And my 30s, the beginning of my 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. And you didn't think any of that changed the world? I know you did some investigative reporting on uh, U-Haul, Pizza King, scam artists, real exposés. You don't feel like by turning those people into the public light and exposing them that you really made a difference? Well, I hope so. Um, But what do you really think? So U-Haul was renting equipment that they weren't really inspecting properly. And there were some horrific accidents. And that's when we started to look into it. You know, I'm working with Mm. a team of producers at this point. We would rent a lot of vehicles in different states. And then we would bring them to inspectors that we had set up in advance. Mm -hmm. And they would take a look at it. And the brakes were bad on some of them. There was no gas cap on another one. So I did it at Inside Edition. And when I went to ABC after that, they said, we really like that investigation. Could you redo it? I'm thinking, well, I'm hoping that They've made it better. So I think we included trailers so you returned or to the scene of the crime? Mm-hmm. Like, what, a year later? And it later? was still, yeah. No improvement? Not really. And then one of the people that worked on the project with me, three weeks after it aired, rented a U-Haul and got stuck on the side of the road. Thank and God. Ran- I thought you were going to say, <laughs> got killed. I thought it was going to... No, no, no. It wasn't that oh, horrific. But I said, they probably oh, weren't set you paying that up? attention? I don't blame U-Haul. <laughs> I would have given them the bummer. But so hopefully, I don't remember seeing them in the headlines as much since then. So I do think that they've probably taken it to heart. And I'm sure that the older equipment has been moved off and they're hopefully have newer equipment. And what was the skinny with Pizza King? What were they doing? I just don't remember them as scam artists in any way. The guy who ran it was a complete scam artist. So he had these vending machines that were supposed to spit out pizzas and they didn't Mm. really work that well. I think they were frozen and the pizzas were moldy and people would buy into this idea. Oh, buy a vending machine. Yeah. And it wouldn't work. And then I don't remember exactly, he wasn't paying them properly or he wouldn't take the equipment back. My husband and I, at the time, we were both just working together. We were down in Florida and we were staking out one of the places, I think, where the vending machines were supposed to be held. And I think we were trying to locate the head of the company because nobody could find him at that point. So we're sitting in a car and we were watching this place for hours and this security guard comes over and knocks on the window with a gun pulled. Oh, my. And that was kind of a terrifying moment. Terrifying. And said, my yeah, God. I think you guys need to leave. I would have so had to bring did. that to U-Haul to have the car cleaned. I'd be so scared, <laughs> right? Right away. Let's go over U-Haul. <laughs> I heard that you met your husband as a result of somebody pulling a gun or waving a gun or no, something so, like so that. No, so we worked together on that story. But I, So I met him at... Inside Edition. Oh, you did? Yes, oh we gosh. were both producing. Was he there the day the guy rolled down the window? He was with down? me, yes. Yeah. And yeah. did he know it was love at first sight when he looked at you and, and ran to your rescue and said, will you marry me on the spot? What <laughs> happened? What happened? 
We went to Vegas, actually, for another story, also involving guns. Maybe that was it. There's some, I don't know, something at gunpoint <laughs> you with have him. a gun? <laughs> <laughs> and we were working on two different stories. I was working on one about computer pedophiles long before uh, To Catch a Predator. And my husband was working on a different scam that was going on in Vegas at the time. Inside Edition had decided that they wanted to take one day in America and try to capture as many gun-related incidents as happened. And we were in Vegas, and they said, would you guys cover it for Vegas? So we stayed in Vegas. You mean waiting for a gun incident to happen Mm -hmm. or something that had already happened? No, waiting for things to happen to see what would happen on this specific day. So we had to then get in touch with the local police who agreed to work with us. And that's also sort of the interesting thing with our job is that sometimes you have to work on the fly. So we would call. Thankfully, the police decided to work with us. We went down to the morgue and we covered, there was a guy who shot himself in the stomach and I'm trying to interview him as they're wheeling him. No way. (laughs) Yeah, that was interesting. And then we went to the morgue because there were several deaths that had occurred with guns that day. Um, What gets a police department to say, yeah, come on in. We're happy to share our crimes with you and work with you. Why would a... I think they were curious as well to see really what was going on. It wasn't a desire that they get to be interviewed and get on TV and they show it to their wives. See me, honey, right there. That's I don't think so. It It may be. I don't think so, though. But they typically cooperate with any of these investigative reports? Mm, No, it depends. It definitely depends. Who's the person that calls them up and talks them into it? And is that a sales job or not? I'm curious how that happens. Usually it's the producer. So usually it would be me. So does the producer naturally have to be a salesman by nature? to sell people on coming along with a story idea and cooperate? Because you need a lot of players to make the story happen, right? Mm, I suppose so, yeah. I never thought about it that way. but um, Do you think yeah. you're particularly strong at getting on a phone and talking somebody into something? I think if I believe it's a good thing for them, yes. Mm-hmm. Like but any I great salesman, you believe in the product, yeah. right? I'm curious why you never became an FBI agent, you and your husband. You could have been a duo, a dynamic <laughs> duo of private investigators, and you never crossed your mind. No. Mm-mm. I think it's because I like to tell the story. I don't want to uh, be the story. I see. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So why'd you quit investigative reporting? The same thing that every great producer out there hopes that one day they could do. And then you decide you're not going to do it anymore. What happened? I got pregnant with my first or second kid, my second child. Wow. And ABC was offering a buyout. And I thought, you know, I've got two kids at home and I'm kind of getting a little a little more nervous about the bad guys that we were going after. Meaning you thought they might have some kind of retribution? Yeah, would sometimes. Expose kids? Yeah, and it was also just negative. I didn't want all mm. that negativity. I wanted more positivity. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. My friends at On Deck Business Loans. Now let's get back to the show. And ABC also did, you know, 2020 did tons of great profiles. So but I associate I thought, that with negative stories, really. Most of 2020. Most of the, well. That you're working with? Yeah, one of the pieces that I worked on, um, Mothers of Hate. The, Perfect for was, raising kids. <laughs> and that was one of the oh last ones I did. Maybe oh, that was, God. That no, was no, a killer. That was really scary to me. It depressing started too, out, I would Yeah, think. we were looking at women coming up in hate groups. Is such a thing as women hate groups? No, no. Women were becoming leaders in hate groups. So it wasn't just men anymore. For my sake and the other people listening, what's a hate group? The KKK. um, Oh, that whole category of haters. Yeah. I see. We profiled 
a woman who was coming up in the KKK, God Hates Fags, and a white supremacist group. And when I picture any of those groups, I think of men, but there are women? Yeah, so the women were coming up in these groups. So we thought that's kind of fascinating. Interesting. Every yeah. single one of these women was a mother. And we that's met- That's even worse. How can a woman hate who has a child to love? Several of the kids. And one of the interviews with the woman who was leading the white supremacist group- Jack Ford was interviewing and he asked her, you know, what would you do if your son came home with a black woman or a Jewish woman and said, I'm in love, I want to get married. And without skipping a beat, she said, I would disown him. I would never speak to him again. Mm, I believe her. Yeah, but it was just crushing to me, I think, because I was such a, a young mom especially, but it was just unbelievable that this kind of venom mm. was going into her kids. How do you protect your own energy? I, I know I, for one, am one of those types of people that if I'm around positive people, I feel the vibe, I'm feeling happy. Mm -hmm. If I'm around five positive people and there's one negative person, I somehow could feel that vibe and it's affecting my mood. Yeah. How do you do that kind of work and just protect your soul in a way to feel comfort that it's not affecting you? Well, I think that's part of the reason that I needed to make the switch is that I wanted that positivity because I did feel like the darkness was weighing down on me. Mm, so I took some time off, stayed with the kids. Um, and that was your design at first, just to take a little time off and give yes. yourself a break, yeah. not make a total break with the field. Yeah. And my husband and I would sort of hopscotch with the kids at that point. So, you know, we would try to have one of us at home, one of us working. We would have a, a nanny that would sort of fill in the gaps. How did you adjust to that? I just know when I saw my business, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great? I really want to learn how to really cook great Italian sauces and all this until I took my first class. I'm like, I'm going to go crazy. I need the pressure of work. How did you respond when you became a full-time mother? I loved it, ah. but it was hard work no and kidding. it was mind-numbing, And right? you weren't paid. <laughs> <laughs> I loved being with the kids, but then you like crave intellectual stimulation. And what did you do about that? Did you get in touch with your old friends at the TV network and say, hey, what are you working on? Live off of what they were doing? Was there any communication or did you feel like you were out in left field? No, actually 9-11 happened right around then. Oh. And it was odd to me because I was so happy that I wasn't in the media at that point. And I th oh. thought, this is so odd. You know, this is like oh, this huge thing to be covering. But because I found it so incredibly sad and horrific, oh. my husband actually was down at the World Trade Center the oh. next day walking around. And that was all that negativity again. I couldn't be around it at that point. So I thought, okay, so this is good. This means that I made the right decision that I should be home right now. But, you know, I think that lasted like three or four months. And then I thought, okay, I need to do something else. I can't just be home. And that's why it worked out perfectly the way that my husband and I had it so that I could then go back to work and you he would going stay back home. Part-time? Part-time. I would freelance. How do you find a part-time work? It's what most women well, who want to return with the same respect, the same responsibilities, but you're either in it all the way or not in it. They have a very hard time finding that. I know most women midlife after the children are a little older really have a hard time returning to work and getting part-time work. How'd you pull that off? Well, this, I was in my 30s, so it wasn't that difficult. And there were a lot of people who were in freelance television. So there are projects that would come up, and I think it works. It's the nature of the work, too, Exactly, I guess. yeah. Mm -hmm. If I would do a couple months here or there, do stories at you know, Core TV. There was a show called Hollywood Heat. I would go over there and do some stuff. I would work at ABC again for a bit. 
So I'd pick up jobs. And then I started doing voiceover work because uh-huh. I loved reading to my kids. I oh. love stories. I love doing well voices. So I would do that on the side. I had lots of different things. Did that give you the satisfaction of feeling like you had to beat a particular job? Or did you just like the variety? Hey, what's tomorrow? Turn a page. What a big surprise. This is what I'm doing tomorrow. Hey, did you like that variety in the well, unknown? I, or did, I did you like well, a beat? The projects that I worked on were great. So Hollywood Heat was fun because as a former music theater person, I loved the entertainment business. Of course. So that was a blast. And then ABC, I freelanced for a show called Medical Mysteries. We would learn about these fascinating diseases and genetic disorders and how people had overcome them. Really interesting work. You I must found. have a very, very high IQ, Mary. No, I think so. No, I think so. Because to have that immense curiosity to want to find out the detail of all of this stuff. There are people who love daily news, you know. um, Gossip. Or breaking news. They want that adrenaline rush right away. I always love doing the research. So I love the investigative stuff where I would make sure that we had all of our bases covered. And even now, you know, when I was doing brave ones with you, I try to get all the details I can about your life. So I know. So it was satisfying to see how much you could dig up, right? Mm -hmm. My sense is that if you're in front of the camera and you're very, very successful, you can make a ton of money. And if you're behind the camera and you're very, very successful, can you make an equal amount of money relative to your positions? No, I don't. But what would you say? Let's say you have the most successful producer behind the camera. Uh, versus the most successful talent in front of the camera. Can the in front of the camera make like 10 times more? Is it like 50% more? I have no idea. So there's no gossip in the field that go on? No, I mean, I know that, you know, their salaries are high. Much much bigger than ours. Is there ever any resentment about that? That would bug the crap out of me. If I was doing all the work, the producing, it was my concept, my idea, my execution, my research, and then that big mouth gets in front of the camera and just blabbers all the stuff I found out for the person— I would hate that sucker if he was making twice as much money. I would just really not like it. I've been in real estate too long, I think. (laughs) Because I think it's affected my attitude toward everything, you know? Like, "Mm, that's not fair. (laughs) Why should that sucker get 7% when I'm getting 5%? I know, but their face is on it. You got to make sure that you get all the facts right. So their face is out there. They're so the in a way, it's their responsibility. It, I suppose, yeah. What happens when something goes wrong in the research and then you reach a certain conclusion, their face is on it, but it's based on your research. Who gets fired? Both, I think, is what we really? find. Mm-hmm. And why would yeah. the mouthpiece, the guy in front of the camera, even have any responsibility? Well, He's because relying- they should. They still need to look through and make sure that everything has been documented properly. Yeah. So that's the, ultimately, they're the final editor that says, I'm going to say this or not. Not necessarily the final editor, but yeah, I mean, they should definitely do their due diligence to make sure that they're not just taking their producer's word. And does that, Usually happen, it's a, a, does that happen a lot that a guy or a girl in front of a camera winds up reporting on stuff that's totally bogus and they lose their job over it? I don't think so. Not so so much, right? No, I mean, there are big cases, obviously, where that's happened, but I think that's rare. Yeah. So now you're working on the brave ones. And forgive me if I describe this as too glamorous, but this is the way I saw it when I met you, okay? Here's a woman who gets to travel around the world, right? Discover exactly what she wants to say about a particular character, does all the research, formulates the story, shows up, does the interviewing, gets to control the editing of it, and goes back home with a happy ending every time, like a beginning, a middle, and a happy ending. And they call this a job. 
Now, let me ask you, is this not the dream job or did I soft pedal it or hard pedal it so much that you don't recognize your job through my lips? No, I love my job. There are tough parts. I mean, you know, sometimes scheduling people to fit into when we actually need the shows to air. And how about getting the people to say yes? Getting the people is really, that's very difficult. And why is that? Because you're giving them a wonderful exposure that is worth so much money to their career. I'm aware of that. What gets in the way of someone saying yes, I I, guess? I I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask them. But yeah, I think it could be. What excuse do they give you when they say, no, we don't want to do it? Or don't you hear the excuse? No, most of the time it's usually that it doesn't fit into somebody's schedule, which could be true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We only do eight or nine of of these a year. Yes. But still, it's a lot of yeses you have to get and a lot of cooperation. It is. Well, because, the, you know, the people that we're going after are, you know, highly successful risk takers. So, And so what do you have on your board in a typical year? Like 50 names and you choose, hey, these entrepreneurs are big success. Are they always entrepreneurs? That's my impression. Most of the time they've had at least some kind of an entrepreneurial bent at some point. Mm-hmm. Bill McDermott was the first person I did. Now, he is the head of SAP, mm-hmm. but he started off when he was a teenager, he bought a deli and he was an incredible entrepreneur, a really good leader. But so he had entrepreneurial stuff in his background and then he worked his way up through Xerox before he went to SAP, but it was his leadership ability. It was an incredible driving force. Mm -hmm. And Um, that's what your goal was. You decided in the research that his main thing was he was a phenomenal leader and you wanted to show how that worked. Is that what typically would be a way you'd formulate your storyline? They're biographical. So you want to make sure that there are peaks and valleys throughout uh-huh. their story. Most people Doesn't have that anyway. Have that? Yeah, yes. sure. But some of them are bigger than others and some of them pay off more. What makes a great candidate other than peaks and valleys? Do they have to be good on air? Like, Because there's some phenomenally successful people that put a camera in front of them and they look boring. What happens? Is that an important requirement, I guess? Yeah, you want to make sure that they're a good storyteller. How do you know that? Most people of this level have done some kind of an interview. Oh, so you just check out the old interviews. Yeah, you can see them online at conferences or Mm. lectures that they've given if it hasn't been a television interview. Okay, so you check that off your list. You check off the peaks and valleys on the list. What else goes into making one of these phenomenal stories, would you say? Well, then you have to have good surrogate people, good people around them to talk about them. But don't people kind of kiss everybody's butt in power? Like I've sensed that sometimes in my life. Like, is that guy loving me or kissing my butt? And usually the answer is kissing my butt and acting like he's loving me. It would be now, boring. Would be terrible. If like, you oh, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want people that are going to be truthful with you about the problems that this person has gone through and the struggles that they have seen. And you want to talk about different parts of their life. And sometimes people won't give us that whole breadth. They decide that their personal life is too personal and they really want to concentrate on the business. But then do you take them right off your list and say, sorry, we're not doing it? No, no. Sometimes we'll still do it. And Um, I guess the uh, business end must be so rich and interesting that it makes up for that. Well, either that or they're willing to talk about it, but they just don't have somebody else that can talk about it as well. It's fine. You can work around that. Yeah. Yeah. And what about if someone on the tape says something terrible about the person? Let's say it's a friend, not an employee, who he supposed was a friend or she supposed was a friend. They say, that guy's really an asshole. 
And what do you do with that? Because I would think I don't that would know make how it we would do with that because we haven't run across that you yet. Haven't? No, you haven't heard any of that bad. from members of my family? <laughs> <laughs> they say that to me. I don't know why they didn't say it to you. <laughs> now, you really haven't uh, run across anything really negative that you think, oh, that's great TV, but we better not put it in and we better clean it up a bit? No. Never. Okay. I guess that depends on who the person you're profiling directs you to speak to, right? I would never send you one of my enemies. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes we'll interview people that we think would be a good person to talk about this person as well. So it's not oh, all, without it's not them recommending. Yes. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, we take their recommendations and then we sometimes throw other people in the mix as well. Wow. So tell me who you've interviewed that you were sitting there and thinking, God, I'm lucky to be here and hear this. Who? I think most people that I really? see. Yes. You are in the right business, my I do, God. Because everybody has a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Everybody. A guy on the street selling papers can have a fascinating story. Without a doubt. But people don't listen to the guy on the street so much. Right. Yeah, which is a shame. And sometimes they tell the best stories, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? I used to be uh, very active in YPO, which is all about young presidents organizations. That's what it stands for, where it was loaded up with entrepreneurs and people who ran large businesses, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I'm biased because I'm an entrepreneur. But I found that when I interviewed heads of very large companies, not that I interviewed them, I shouldn't say that, had a conversation, but with me, everything is an interview because I'm curious, you know? Yes. But I found that a lot of those people were boring. They couldn't hold my interest. Now, I don't know, maybe- Wait, the entrepreneurs were boring? No, the entrepreneurs were eternally interesting. Yes. They were a little weird. Uh, You know, they had a, a certain- oddity to them in one way or the other that held my interest. And they were very much themselves, I felt. Whereas very often when you come up through a large corporate structure and you have a lot of power, I found that the people were just not exciting to listen to. Well, I think it's also that they're a little boxed in. They don't want to say the wrong thing because they might piss somebody off. But if you're an entrepreneur, Mm. it's you. You could say anything that you want. Well said. You're not accountable to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. What's the wildest thing you ever heard an entrepreneur say? Oh, geez. I I, I know, know these are tough questions because you're um, doing this all the time. Because then I have to think back. So getting back to some of the interesting people, there was a series that I started myself called Escaping the Cube. It was about people who had made drastic changes in their businesses. And it was started because my husband left television to become a beekeeper. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's kind what? of a, a really bee- fascinating, right? Certainly, so, I'm interested. So I thought there are other people that must do these crazy flips. So it was people who were basically getting out of corporate America and starting their own business. Most of it was started by something that they were passionate about. Like my husband had a hobby in beekeeping. Those people were really fascinating. Of course. You'd want to have dinner with them right away. Like right away, I want to call your husband. You're out of the seat. I'm going to get him (laughs) here. And so you did a whole series on those people who totally changed their lives, almost followed their heart. Yes, exactly. Most of the time. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. how did they make a living? Like, for example, your husband comes from being a successful guy in the TV business, goes into beekeeping. Is there a lot of money in beekeeping? He makes a decent amount of money. Not what he was making in television, but yeah, he makes a good living. And then you have found from that that he was just using him as an example because we're gossiping about him Mm -hmm. here without his permission. But did you find that he was a much happier person by making that switch and didn't look back? Yeah, well, he's sort of like you. He has a lot of different ideas. He tried to run a summer camp for a while. He thought he wanted to do that. And then he went back to television. So he's constantly reinventing himself. 
because he's curious about so many things. And this one, I think, is stuck for a while. This was the one that I said, I think this is a really good idea. I think I was explaining to you before, but he doesn't just keep bees and sell honey. Mm -hmm. It's more like a landscaping business. So he has them on rooftops for hotels and for hospitals. For people who want to attract a bee. For <laughs> pollination? I mean, for pollination, yeah. For people who want bees. to do good. There's a green initiative in a lot of places, an environmental initiative right now. And the bees were in trouble. And everyone likes a bee who's in trouble. I really do believe so. Everybody feels badly for the bees when they die. Yes, yes. Sincerely so. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's a hero of sorts. So he places these hives all over the place, and then he will take care of the bees, harvest the honey, and give it to the client. That's the way he makes his living. It's not a normal sort of How interesting, business. though, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to spend a whole day with him. Not to interview and report on anything. You can get in a bee suit. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I bet so. Or just come over and take a look at our observation hive. We have one of those ones with plexiglass, so you can see everything that's going on. You find the queen, you see the eggs. So what's next for you? I don't know, because I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm so happy with what I'm doing right now. Why don't you say more of the same? Okay, more of the same. More of the same. (laughs) You're not afraid of losing your job to some young up-and-coming person who wants to take it from you? You know, it's a very competitive uh, business. Well, Sorry, there's always that. that. But um, how do you know you're doing a good enough job that that's not a threat? That you could say, boy, man, that was good. I'm the best at this. I don't know if I would say that I'm the best at this. I think I'm very good at what I do. And I think I try really hard. And I think I'm very passionate about it. And I think that shows. It shows in your work, no doubt, because I've right, watched you it. all. Mm-hmm. How important do you think the passion is versus having the natural talent to do something? What's more important? Well, I think they kind of commingle. So do you think if you had a colleague who had your passion and didn't have your curiosity to collect the information, form the story, all the other yeah, things are going to? it's hard to separate to, those out. You have to have it all. I think, you know, I have this great team of people. I couldn't do it without them. I've got fantastic photographers and editors. My other producers are fabulous. And I think you need all of that collaboration. You know, there's also been a move for predators, producer editors to do everything or shooting. They want people to shoot and edit and produce the entire thing. Sounds like low budget. Is it to get a certain effect or is it just to save money? Some of it's to save money, but you lose that aspect of other eyes because it's so helpful mm. to get so many different eyes and so many different takes on what if you're, you're listening at. to your team a lot of people have the teams and don't listen right yeah but um, obviously you're a listener you argue over which music selection you want or which shot goes in here or how long it's held or do we want graphics in this i think the collaboration is really important well mary it's such a pleasure being with you really Thanks I, so much. I, I love the fact that you're never interviewed and you let me interview you no you were fantastic you're i was a, a little soul. worried yeah why was, would you worry well, because kevin o'leary says you know barbara she probes with needles so, he said that, that yes, bastard. But no, Don't but, believe you know, him. But not for this type of interview. When you're figuring out who you're going to invest in. Oh, probes with needles. So I thinking, I hope he she is, probe. No, no, no. That's just a good soundbite. I don't even do that. You don't <laughs> listen to Kevin O'Leary. He's just like, you know, Kevin O'Leary. <laughs> anyway, Thanks thank so you. much for coming. You remember uh, you promised me you beekeeper husband. Absolutely. Okay, yep. I'll take you up on that. Okay. <laughs> and that's all the questions we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, 
Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Business Unusual is part of the iHeartRadio podcast network. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.